Good morning, my name's Ken, and we're going to read from Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 to 40, and you'll find it on page 864 in the Bible, uh, in the church Bibles, and I'd thoroughly recommend that you do read along with it, because the language in it is um, a little bit complex, and I'm looking forward to hearing um, Tim preach on it um, in a little while. It's entitled Acknowledging Christ. Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it, and anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. The one who welcomes you welcomes me. And the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. I'm not checking my Facebook, I'm just setting a timer. There we go. Morning, everybody. It's nice to see so many uh, happy faces. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to... uh, Uh, Unpack this passage a little bit in a moment, but first uh, I'm going to pray a prayer for us. Uh, These are in the words of a guy called John Calvin. Let's bow our heads briefly and pray. Enlighten us by your Holy Spirit, in true understanding of your Holy Word, enabling us to handle it faithfully and to receive it in true fear and humility. Amen. Well, if you've ever bought a, a children's Bible then you might be sort of familiar with the uh, kind of picture that kids might have of Jesus. You open up kids' Bibles and it looks something like this. Uh, Jesus always has his hands out like this because he's open and he's friendly. Jesus is always smiling. To make uh, us Westerners feel comfortable, Jesus is usually white, even though he was from the Middle East. Uh, And Jesus is supposed to be the kind of nice guy that you'd happily lend 50 bucks knowing he's going to give it back to you later on. Uh, Jesus is a nice guy. He only does nice things. Uh, Similarly, when we see and hear about him in movies and TV, the idea of a nice guy is something that is portrayed as well. Uh, We see this particularly in movies like the 1990s movie uh, Dogma, Uh, where the uh, church decides in that that maybe we want to do away with the cross altogether because that's a little bit too confrontational and aggressive. Instead, maybe we'll just make, we'll call him Buddy Jesus. He's the guy who's always giving a thumbs up. He's always happy. He is just there to add value to your life. It is always good, always friendly, never confronting. I remember thinking, oh, that's a a funny caricature, but then I was reading some articles about churches and how they make decisions about uh, preaching, and there are a number of churches that do say our philosophy is we only preach the happy, the uplifting, the good things that Jesus say. Anything that makes us feel better about ourselves, that's what we want to be about. 
But if ever there's a character that I think reflects what a lot of people think of when they think of a Jesus-type character, it is this guy, Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. Ned and his family are unceasingly and often frustratingly positive people. They only ever have nice things to say and they'd run a mile rather than have any kind of confrontation that would make somebody feel uncomfortable. Of course, Ned Flanders is supposed to be a parody or a caricature of Christianity, but for a lot of people in our culture, this is how they understand who Jesus is and what Jesus' message is all about. Jesus is the guy who is always and only ever about love. I've had a million conversations, often with people who haven't opened a Bible or been to church in 20 years, but they're always more than willing to tell me who Jesus is and what he's all about. Why do you go about this thing or that thing? Surely Jesus is only about love. Surely that means for you that you should be just letting people love who they want to love, let people do what they want to do, let people say what they want to say, because that's the gospel message, isn't it? And there certainly is a sense in which that might resonate with us, that the, uh, the gospel message is a message about peace. Uh, we could look to the Old Testament and see prophecies like this in Isaiah 9. Uh, for, us, a ch- uh, uh, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, Luke picks this up in his gospel when there's uh, the birth of Jesus and we hear this. This is what the angels sing in front of the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favours. We can have a picture of Jesus as the one who brings peace, that it is a a good news thing, that it is only uh, supposed to be happy and bright. But then how do we make sense of a verse like the second half of verse 34? If you have it open in front of your Bibles, that might be helpful. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And does this mean that Jesus is actually pro-conflict? When we think about Christian faith, does that mean maybe we should put aside Ned Flanders altogether and we should actually have a picture of uh, the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition? This is people swinging the sword for Jesus. Uh, Even worse, look ahead to verse 37. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. At first blush, one might read this and think that becoming a Christian means that I have to uh, hate my own family. I have to separate myself. Maybe are we supposed to be like the Amish? We separate ourselves from anything that is near and dear and we keep ourselves as far away from the culture around us as possible. Are there two Jesuses? There's the Jesus of the kids' books, happy and friendly and hands always out to give you a hug. And then there's the angry Jesus. We have on one side the Jesus that that says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. But then Jesus who speaks statements like he does here in chapter 10 about a sword, what appears to be about violence. Now, can it be reconciled? Well, we're going to think about that a little bit this morning, and we're going to do so by thinking about three things. Firstly, what is the kind of sword that Jesus is bringing? Secondly, as Christians, what is the kind of peace that we're really hoping for? And finally, how does this all work out in the end? What does it mean practically for us? 
well, there are a lot of things that aren't divisive until suddenly they are. Uh, I remember listening a, a year or two ago to a, an interview of Matt Damon, the famous actor, and he was being uh, asked about what was the most exciting sports event that he'd ever been to. And he's uh, married to an Argentinian, Argentinian woman. He said the best thing he ever did was when he went to a soccer game with his wife's uncle. When he first started, he thought, oh, I love soccer, Argentinians love soccer. This is going to be a great opportunity for the family to go together and see a game. But he knew things were going to be different when the uncle looked at him and he said, no women, no children. And he thought, well, that, that doesn't sound like a, a soccer game that I, I, I want to go to, but I'll go along anyway. When they got to the game, uh, there were three different levels of security they had to go through before they could get into the stadium. And then when they got into the stadium, he thought, I'm a, I'm a famous person. Maybe I'll get to sit on the 50-meter line. I can see all of the action. Uh, but there were fans at one end and fans at the other end. And then right in the middle of the field, there was a 40-meter gap between two different sets of fans. He couldn't work out why until uh, his uh, uncle-in-law told him, 40 meters is about as far as somebody can throw a bottle if they really try. And this is where he realized something really important. To be a football fan is something that might unite people. It's the most popular sport in the whole world. But to be an Argentinian fan of either Boca Juniors or River Plate, uh, these two soccer enemies, uh, this is a matter of life and death. People enter into different ends of the stadium. You have to wait for 50 minutes for the other people to leave before you come back out. On Monday to Friday, you can be at work in, with somebody in an office. You can uh, get on great. Maybe you go out for uh, lunch together in the middle of the day. But come Saturday, when the jerseys come on, people are picking a side, and it really matters if you are a fan of one team or the other. Uh, last week, I got to go to CMS Summer School, and there were some Argentinian missionaries there, and they were saying, this is very much the reality in this country. It doesn't matter if you have a thousand other things in common. For Argentines, football is life. And no matter how close you are in some areas, there are some things that split you down the middle. If you have different views on this one important thing, uh, you are enemies, if only for a Saturday evening. Well, in chapter 10 in Matthew, uh, it comes after Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. These two and a half chapters are this moment where re Jesus really doubles down on the Old Testament teaching. He tells his listeners that loving and serving God isn't just a matter of paying lip service. It's not just saying things, but people actually asking, what does it really mean to live out my life, to put on the jersey and say, I am a follower of Jesus, I'm a follower of God? It's not just a matter of somebody not cheating on their wife, but it's a matter of somebody saying, if I really love my wife, I'll not even look lustfully at somebody. It's a matter of saying, telling the truth isn't just for special occasions when I, I really mean it, but if I love God, then I want to make sure that when I say yes, I mean yes, and when I say no, I mean no. That loving people isn't just loving people who are easy to love, but loving even my enemies as God uh, loves all of us. Jesus lays out that real discipleship is something uh, that really is about all of my life. But as he does this, he draws a line between the people. You see the two very different jerseys that they put on. For one group of people, they hear this and they say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to know him. I want to be part of his family. 
But for another group, the people who you might expect are going to listen and hear and want to be part of this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this is the moment where they respond in anger and they even plot to discredit and even murder Jesus. Jesus brings a sword not in that he calls people to violence, but that you get two very different responses, that all of a sudden you have two very different and opposed teams that come from his teaching. Eventually, they will respond to his actions, to his death and even his resurrection, and it will cause division. A man against a father, a daughter against a mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. Because for many Jewish people in the first century, they were uh, born into their identity. That was who they were. It was a a culture and a structure that defined uh, what they were all about. But as Jesus comes and challenges people, that the very beating heart of being uh, one of God's followers is to have a personal relationship with God, not just a cultural relationship. It separates the people in between, those people who are part of a culture and those people who are part of a whole-of-life experience, being part of God's family. To follow Jesus was to risk being alienated from the very culture that they were a part of. And of course, for many of us not growing up in Jewish families, we don't have the same kind of risk necessarily. But we do know that as Christian teaching becomes more and more countercultural, we do find ourselves in a similar situation. That taking a Christian stance on on how I define myself, what my life and my identity is all about, is something that can be seen as offensive and maybe even hateful to other people who hear me. And we see more of a a two-sides kind of thing whenever we call ourselves Christians. And of course, uh, we're very lucky because we're in the the West. While for much of the world, uh, there is even more risk. Nabil Qureshi was a Pakistani-American who wrote a, a famous book calling, uh, called uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's a fascinating story because uh, he was actually a Muslim apologist. He was living in the U.S. He was enjoying going into universities and getting into discussions uh, for him as a Muslim and against Christians. Uh, but then he had a years-long discussion with a Christian friend that actually ended in him becoming a Christian himself. For Nabil and for many Muslims who convert to Christianity, the good news of the gospel is a point of division, though. Uh, He wrote in his book uh, that the most painful thing he ever did uh, was to become a Christian because it meant the loss of his friendships with his Muslim friends and family. And for many Muslims throughout the world, conversion to Christianity can mean being shunned by a family. It could mean an honour killing. And in some countries under Sharia law, it can even mean having a death sentence. It is illegal to become a Christian if you are a Muslim, literally receiving the sword. In verses 34 to 36, Jesus speaks to the reality that there will be separations that happen over the gospel. People unwilling to acknowledge God as God, but then verse 37 takes it one step further. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Is Jesus saying that it's not just a matter of risking others not liking us, but that we actually have to separate ourselves from our mums or our sisters or our our siblings? Well, I don't think so. I think as Lydia captured so well in the kids' talk, it's not saying that we need to love other people less, but we need to get things right and we need to love God first. 
there are two really different ways that we make uh, value judgments in life. Uh, the first one is the easy one, and that is when you're picking between something that is really good and something is really bad. Uh, so if you offered me a, a meat lover's pizza or a Hawaiian pizza, uh, the decision for me is really easy. Uh, meat lovers represents all that is good and right and pure and noble in the pizza world. Hawaiian pizza is Satan's attempt to ruin something that is good and right and pure and noble. Uh, it is an easy decision that we make. One thing that is beautiful, one thing that is horrible, and I know where I want to go. Uh, if you have different feelings about that, I'm happy to chat about it afterwards. But the other way that we work out value judgments is not between the good and the bad, but sometimes we have to make the decisions between what is good and what is best. Uh, I have a true adoration of meat lovers' pizza, but the best thing for me is to make sure I look after my health so I cannot eat it seven days a week and I have to keep it down to only three or four. Uh, it is a good thing, but I have to look after the best thing, which is that I want to be able to continue to be uh, healthy and, and uh, be a good parent and things like that. Uh, Jesus' challenges for his listeners is that when they experience opposition, when people, maybe even their own family, challenge them, that they don't abandon the best thing, which is, which is knowing a Jesus, their Lord and Saviour. They don't abandon the relationship, which is eternally significant, just so that they can make peace in a relationship that is just in the here and now. Because the Bible is unequivocal that family is a good thing. The fourth commandment is to honour your father and mother. The Bible is clear about our responsibility to our family again and again. It's a good thing to care for those who are closest to you. But Jesus wants to be clear that as good as family is, being part of God's family knowing the author of creation is the most important thing. So important that though we hope and pray it doesn't happen, it's even worse, worth risking everything else, even relationships with our own family, for us to know the God who made us. Uh, it would be a wonderful thing if the Bible promised that actually uh, when you become a Christian, you get worldly peace all of the time. Imagine if you, uh, you make a confession of faith and all of a sudden, everything you do always works out smoothly. Your workmates and your schoolmates, they never misunderstand anything you say, and it's always a breeze. Everybody has a great time. Uh, when you go driving, uh, there's always a parking spot where you want it, and you never have to hover your hand over the, the beeper because people are always loving and respectful in the way they drive around you. Uh, it'd be great if that is what Christianity is all about, but it's not what the Bible promises. Instead, Jesus says that the Christian life looks like taking up our cross and following Jesus. The Christian life involves sacrifice for us as Christians. But here is the great irony in this, that as Jesus says to his disciples that they're going to have to take up their cross, it would have been a profoundly disturbing thing because this is before Jesus himself has died on the cross. But as Jesus calls his listeners to a self-sacrificial life that will put them in conflict with their family, he does so in a way that points to the future by uh, the means of which uh, Jesus is going to bring us into a right relationship with God. He talks about sacrifice and pain, but as he does so, that very thing is the thing that brings us into a peaceful relationship with God. To put our trust in Jesus who lived and died on the cross and then rose again, 
to follow the one who gives us life and new life, uh, even though it means we might experience broken relationships with the people we live, is worth it because it means that we know the one uh, who created the world we live in. We know the one who made us and loves us. And as we put our trust in God, as we seek to honour him with our lives, the reality is we learn that this is the best way that we can love our father and our sister and our daughter. When we love the God who made us first and foremost, that actually reshapes the way that we love the people around us into a way that we can love them, our God willing, into an eternal relationship with God as well. When we love the creator, we see his creation in a new light. If the only peace we're looking for is an absence of war, just kind of smoothing things over, then it's only a shallow peace we really want. It'd be great if I could just click my fingers and Russia and Ukraine turn into good neighbours. It'd be wonderful if North Korea said to South Korea, why don't you come over and have a cup of tea and a chat? It'd be amazing if every family bust-up that we might have experienced was just to solve itself today. But we know the reality is that people are sinful, that we are sinful, and that inevitably we'd find new ways to fight, new lines to draw, new teams to help separate us. But in the Gospel we see that God doesn't just gloss over troubles, that he's not just promising a peace that is flattening kind of conflict and waiting for it to start again but getting to the very root of the problem. That through the person and work of Jesus, God offers us a peace that is so much more than just an absence of war. It's the opportunity to come back into a good and right and pure relationship with God. Because Jesus deals with the fruit of broken relationships, but he also deals with the root of that, which is the sin in our lives. And God offers us a new and pure and spotless relationship with him that he promises that is not just for a moment, is not just a smooth day, but an eternal future. Broken relationships are regrettable, are regrettable but inevitable. So long as we live in a world that says, I am the most important person and actually achieving what I want is what I'm all about, there will always be ways for us to find new conflict amongst ourselves. But in the gospel, we're reminded that the true meaning doesn't come from within. It doesn't come from achieving what I want and it's all about me, but looking up to the God above. And we can look up to the God above confidently, not because we get everything right, but because God looked down at us and sent his son into our very own world so that he might live a sinless life, that he might die on our behalf on the cross and that in rising to new life, he would offer us a new start and bring us to at peace with God. So we hear in verse 39, everyone who finds his life, that is anyone who says, it's all about me, who I am and what I do, he will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. As John 10.10 10 reminds us, Jesus has come that we might have life and have it in abundance. So the question in the end is really, uh, uh, what does all of this mean? Uh, I want to uh, mention three things. Uh, the first is, I think this means for us that we want to pray for good relationships. Uh, to live lives that are, are for God and seeking to honour him uh, means that we are by nature going to challenge the dominant narrative that our world speaks about. 
and that is that we're told uh, it really is all about you. Our personal fulfillment, finding the authentic you, uh, finding that thing that gives you a, a, a sense of kind of a thrill and excitement, that is what life is all about. And when we say, no, I'm living for the God who made me and loves me and wants me to have new life, uh, that butts up against that. So we want to make sure that as we seek to uh, uh, live in a way that honours God, that we want to make sure that we don't find ways to actually cause tension uh, with people around us. Uh, The Apostle Peter speaks about this on a number of occasions in uh, 1 Peter. We hear uh, things like this. Conduct yourselves honourably amongst the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And similarly in chapter 3, always be ready at any time to give a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused... Those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Uh, When I look back to my uh, teens and my early 20s, I was a new Christian and I was so keen to be a defender of the gospel uh, that I really, I look for ways to get into conflict with people. There was nothing better than having an argument over Christianity and uh, I'd meet up with somebody and I'd find some way to push the boundaries. I look back and I realise that I was actually being unchristian when I was doing that. I was looking uh, really for ways to bring dishonour to the gospel. That I wanted to argue, that I wanted to fight, that I didn't actually want to uh, love people. That sometimes actually being a Christian meant that I needed to uh, be gentle and reverent in the way that I spoke. That I didn't give people an actual reason to say, oh look at those Christians like Tim, he's such a nasty person, he always wants to fight. As Christians, we want to carry in ourselves in a way that brings honour to Jesus. The second thing that I think we can do is that we want to make sure that we're shaping our our lives by our number one priorities. I'll be honest and I'll say this is the thing as I've been praying about this this week and I've been preparing, I find this hardest to do. Uh, the easiest example, the thing that really convicts me is when I have family members come to my house. Uh, very few of my family are, are Christian and I have those little moments, say we're having lunch or dinner and I think maybe well, our regular practice is to say grace and I think maybe I won't say grace because I don't want to make my family member feel uncomfortable. And then I realise afterwards uh, that if I want to actually uh, honour God, then uh, maybe, and if I want to love my family then showing my number one priority by doing those things that I do day by day is something I want to do. It's okay if it makes my mum feel a little bit uncomfortable. If what I'm doing is actually modelling, this is how Christians do their life together in in, uh, particular ways. How are we modelling that our relationship with God is our number one priority? Does it mean thinking through some of the decisions I make at work? Does it mean maybe I won't be as popular in the sporting team because sometimes I do miss games? Or are there other ways that I need to make sure that I'm honouring God with who I am and what I do? Uh, Finally, our challenge is that we can pray for our families uh, that though we might feel conflict, uh, that God in his grace and mercy might use us and those around us to bring into a saving relationship with God for them. 
It's not easy to minister to your own family. It's painful because they know you when you were the 15-year-old who was rude and sullen and angry and, you know, got into fights. But God continues to work in our lives. God continues to shape us and make us more like his son Jesus. And so we can pray that even though we might have conflict with our families over our faith, it's worth it. And God offers something better by far. Let's pray about that now. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we do thank you that you love us and that you give us new life and a relationship that has eternal significance. We pray, Lord, that you would help us shape our lives by this relationship and that in doing so, you would help us love those nearest and dearest to us in ways that are significant as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.